What It Takes is brought to you by AES, a Fortune 500 global energy company. Together with its customers, AES is setting a new standard for the future of energy to create a 100% carbon-free world. AES partners with organizations, no matter where they're at in their energy journey, to co-create the greener, smarter energy solutions the world needs. AES's team of more than 500 clean energy innovators in the U.S. find solutions that are both economically viable and environmentally friendly. AES is also walking the walk to achieve net zero carbon emissions from electricity sales by 2040. Learn more about how AES can empower you to achieve your energy goals and create the energy future we all need at AES.com. What It Takes is also brought to you by DLA Piper, a full-service global law firm that works with leading technology companies and their investors to meet all their legal needs. DLA Piper has been instrumental in Powerhouse's growth, as it has been for hundreds of companies changing the way we power our world. DLA Piper has lawyers in 40 countries across the Americas, Middle East, Africa, and Asia-Pacific, wherever you're doing business. DLA Piper delivers value to its clients. It helps startups go from garage to global, and it helps established technology companies to grow smartly. You can subscribe to DLA Piper's thought leadership events and publications at dlapiper.com. I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse. This is What It Takes, a show about entrepreneurs making our zero carbon future a reality. In this episode, my conversation with Kathy Hanoon, the co-founder and president of Dandelion, Dandelion is a company reinventing home geothermal systems. The company uses a proprietary drilling technique, simple product design, and financing to cut the cost of ground-sourced heating and cooling. For seven years, Kathy was on a team at Alphabet X, formerly Google X, evaluating technology moonshots. And that's where she stumbled upon the opportunity in home geothermal. In this interview, I spoke with Kathy about what she's learned trying to tackle tough tech like home geothermal. We'll hear about what she learned from her time at Google, how she built her team, and why raising money as an expecting mother presented some unique challenges. This conversation was recorded live at Powerhouse's headquarters in Oakland, California in 2019. We began with Kathy's early career working on another difficult technology, one that created carbon-neutral fuels from seawater. That project was brought to a close when we realized that just given the state of the technology, while I actually completely believe in it still, that carbon neutral fuels will be an element of the future, it was a little bit too far away to make sense for X. And so we decided to publish the research scientifically, but then close down the project in terms of not move forward with commercialization. Sort of in the meantime, or in parallel, um, this software engineer named Bob out of the New York office had emailed all of the people at Google on an, a listserv about energy to suggest that geothermal heat pumps were the number one thing that could be done to revolutionize the way people use energy in the United States. He made this like fantastically bold claim in this very, 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 very long email. <laughs> that um, went out to a very large readership. I don't know how many of us got all the way through it, but because my job was specifically like, let's find the things that can make the biggest difference. And I focused on energy, um, the biggest technology opportunities, I should say. My interest was peaked. And so I decided, you know, let's understand what Bob is talking about. And that process 
led me down this path that I continue on today. So just, you know, at X, like the first thing we would try to do is figure out what are the fundamental reasons that this technology can't be used to make a business that could change the world and and be very lucrative in the process. And usually it's pretty easy to figure out a few things, like a few big obstacles of why that couldn't happen. You know, most, most ideas you can... You can come up with, I guess, at least the constraints and challenges pretty quickly. And and for this one, I really struggled in kind of a great way to find that. And so, you know, in contrast with this carbon neutral fuel project, which was so far from commercialization, I really just couldn't understand why geothermal heat pumps were so expensive and hadn't been more commercially successful because it seemed like the time was now, but obviously the market was super small. And then what did you do with that idea? I was lucky to have a colleague at the time at X, Ben Tarbell. Who's in the um, audience. Who's in the audience. And he had been an early employee at SolarCity. And he, in that role, had acquired a company led by an entrepreneur named James Quasi. So I went to Ben just to talk to him about heat pumps because I knew... You know, there's some similarities with solar in, in the sense of it's a, you could use it for a residential energy technology that could potentially be a lot less expensive than the incumbent products. And so he said, the one person that I would recommend you talk to is James. You should call him. So I did. And luckily for me, James, um, you know, about half a year before had become a stay-at-home dad in Davis, California. And I think he was ready to dig into a project. And so despite his skepticism about heat pumps, he decided to agree to consult on this project for X. And that's how I met my co-founder. And how did he go from consultant to co-founder? So like me, he dug into the numbers thinking that he would easily disprove um, or easily show why geothermal probably was not a good idea but just couldn't do it because the numbers actually suggested the opposite. And so reluctantly, because he is the type of entrepreneur who prefers not to work at big companies, he did decide to join X just out of intrigue with this idea. And then together we realized, you know, this opportunity is really well suited to be a startup because it requires a lot of feedback from customers And so it helps you to commercialize as soon as possible. And X is a really great place to do R&D and like really hard technical problems, but it's not really set up to commercialize. And so we pitched the idea to, to spin it out as a startup and they supported us. And what did that look like as far as the terms of the spin out and how did that go? It required a lot of effort on both sides just because there wasn't a template for it. So we were suggesting a path that wasn't well-worn, to say the least. Um, In the end, uh, we treated X a little bit like an incubator. So they had supported us, paid our salaries, uh, gotten us through our first rounds of drilling R&D, which is a key element of the technology required to make geothermal more mainstream. And then in exchange, they got some equity in Dandelion, and we got our patents and our permission to operate. So you own all the IP? Yeah. Gotcha. Um, But Google didn't invest any capital. Um, After we left, they didn't. And so the first thing we needed to do when we left X was raise money. How much money had you raised by the time you spun out? Zero dollars. (laughs) Gotcha. So you spun it out without any capital. Yeah. With the idea that you would fundraise. 
Yeah, exactly. And tell us about that seed round. Yeah. So I had, you know, I'd worked at, at Google, pretty much only Google for my career. And so I didn't have a lot of experience fundraising to say the least. Um, so it's a really tough process like it is for most people. And I know that we benefited so much from having come from Google X. That was a huge advantage. Um, but nonetheless, geothermal heat pumps wasn't the number one category really? for most investors. Oh. So it was, um, yeah, it took a lot of trial and error, mostly error. And then eventually we did find an investor. Who was that? So a fund called Collaborative Fund out of New York led our seed round. It was a $2 million round, which was what we needed to do the first, very first thing, which for us was just to show if you could offer geothermal to consumers, would anyone want it? You know, most of the time geothermal is so expensive that it's really limited to very, very wealthy people and people who are very enthusiastic about geothermal. And so because it's relatively unknown, we just wanted to figure out if we offered it at a reasonable price that actually was cash flow positive to homeowners, would they adopt this relatively unknown type of heating system? And like, luckily for us, the answer was Definitely, yes. And then you ended up raising another 2.5 as part of that initial seed round? We ended up um, that winter raising another 4.5. Another 4.5, gotcha. And uh, an article that we found, um, I think it was CNBC, that said the day after you closed that 4.5 million seed round, you had your first baby. Yes. Tell us about raising money while you were pregnant and then closing and then going into labor the next day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, it was, uh, well, you know, um, that fall when I was pregnant, um, we looked at our our business and our cash flow and realized we were going to want to raise money in the winter. And I... I I knew from sort of how hard it was to raise money. Plus now I knew like as the closer we got to winter, the more pregnant I would look. And so it just really motivated me to try to like get as much done as quickly as I could because I had this very inflexible deadline, (laughs) two, two very inflexible deadlines. Um, I would say it was a very difficult time to be honest. And we ended up with a great outcome. So in retrospect, I'm very thankful for that. But at the time, you know, we, we thought we found our lead investor. We had a lot of interest and we were just like that winter, you know, depths of winter, we were trying to close this round and the holidays came. And of course that delayed everything because that's what happens. And then still trying to close it and a complication, I guess, came up, which I'd rather not get into the details, but it really put the whole round at risk. And I was just like really pregnant at this time. And it was just, it felt very high stakes. It was like, I wasn't experienced at closing fundraising deals, which in retrospect was a huge contributor to this problem. But I just needed to close this round because if it fell apart, I didn't really have time to recover, both from the perspective of the company, which was running low on cash, but then also my personal perspective. So 
literally at the 11th hour, the round closed. And then I think sort of in the way, uh, you know, when I was in college and would be working really hard and then go, it would be spring break or something and I would immediately get sick. I felt like my body did a similar thing where it was like, okay, the money is in the bank, have a baby. And then I just like had my baby. Um, So yeah, all's well that ends well. And I think it was just, uh, I feel very grateful for the outcome we Mm. achieved. Fundraising while pregnant, did you intentionally not disclose the pregnancy? And what was your thought process behind that? It was a difficult thing to navigate because I didn't have a lot of... um, I didn't have a lot of people who had done it before advising me on like the best way to go about it. But I think the thing that was difficult, I didn't look very pregnant. So even up till close to the very end, I really, you couldn't tell that I was pregnant, even though I was like very pregnant. And so had I brought it up, it would have been surprising. And then even more surprising when the natural next question was, well, how far along are you? And it also it's sort of related to a much bigger discussion about life and work in general. So CEOs are and fundraisers and startup um, leaders are people, but it wouldn't be very expected for somebody in a fundraising meeting to say, by the way, I'm getting divorced. You should know that because it might affect your investment. Or like, by the way, I'm struggling with depression. Or like, you know, there are so many things that you can be dealing with in your personal life that it would be weird to disclose them to an investor. And I kind of felt like just bringing up the pregnancy fit into that category where it was like this thing in my personal life. And it was just hard to imagine how that would conversation could go in a way that wouldn't just seriously detract from the conversation I was trying to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So while I did feel like a lot of confusion and conflict about the decision, because honestly, the investors that ended up supporting us, I think, you know, they were un- universally supportive when I did tell them that I was pregnant, but it was hard to navigate. What It Takes is brought to you by AES, a Fortune 500 global energy company. AES imagines a future that is 100% carbon-free, and it's doing the work today to make that future a reality. AES is partnering with organizations to help them transition to new, smarter, and cleaner solutions, all while continuing to meet their energy needs and give them a competitive edge. Creating a greener future for everyone means working together globally across industries of every kind, from utilities in Hawaii to corporations in Virginia and at every stage of development. In the U.S. alone, AES's clean energy business is leveraging its 2.5 gigawatt portfolio of renewables and 12 gigawatt development pipeline to co-create and scale innovative solutions like solar, wind, energy storage, and hybrid clean technology portfolios to make the biggest impact to both your sustainability and business goals. AES is setting a new standard for the future of energy. Learn more about how you can join at AES.com. What It Takes is also supported by DLA Piper. DLA Piper has been instrumental in Powerhouse's growth and success, as it has been for hundreds of companies changing the way we power our world. DLA Piper's team of technology sector lawyers supports clients with their legal needs across the globe. As demand for zero-carbon energy and other climate solutions grows, startups and established companies in the energy sector are looking to their lawyers to provide more than just legal knowledge. They're also seeking in-depth sector know-how and innovative solutions to the challenges they face. DLA Piper's energy lawyers deliver focused, creative sector advice wherever in the world clients need it. 
Being both global and local, DLA Piper understands the technical, geographical, commercial, and geopolitical factors that shape the energy sector. DLA Piper also has a podcast called Beyond the Curve, which features topics and guests from across the business spectrum. Its goal is to help businesses and communities navigate the challenges they face in today's world. You can find Beyond the Curve on podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, and find more about programs and publications at dlapiper.com. How has the A round that you just raised, the $16 million, been similar or different from the seed round? It's been very different because one of the great gifts of the seed round was that um, as part of their due diligence process, our lead investor, NEA, put us in touch with one of their successful clean energy entrepreneurs, Dan Yates, who is the CEO and co-founder of Opower, to just talk to us and figure out if we were a good company to invest in. And um, he just ended up getting really intrigued by the opportunity and felt like it is the time for heat pumps. And this is a real, you're doing an interesting thing. And this company, you know, took hold of his imagination. And so he um, ended up getting very involved. And now he's our executive chairman and works with us full time. And he is an expert fundraiser. And um, Having him as a partner on the on the A really made a huge difference to my experience with it. It was very different than the first time around. And what did this capital allow you to do? How did you get your first customers? What did the initial projects, did they go smoothly? Were there mistakes made? Mm-hmm. For our very, very initial projects, we were selling an off-the-shelf off heat pump um, and working with a subcontractor who installed Geo. So it was really about just figuring out um, market demand. To get those customers, we were really helped by the fact that we got a lot of press when we left Google. You know, it was just like a really big advantage for us and, and sent, it, it really raised awareness of what we were doing. And then I was just like literally going to homes and selling geothermal, even though I had no sales experience. And certainly it was Again, very much trial and error, but we got our first customers that way. And then this year we started selling our custom heat pump. Your own? Our own dandelion. We call it the dandelion air heat pump. That's great. Um, Tell us about the drilling and uh, your process in innovating in that space. Sure. So one of the key challenges you have to overcome to make geothermal work is Um, You have to put what are called ground loops in customers' yards and do it cheaply and without disrupting the yard very much. Um, And this has been a really big challenge for the industry. I think what's interesting is uh, how little attention has ever been paid to this problem, just because there's been no real reason to figure out how to drill in people's yards cheaply and cleanly. You know, there there has been a lot of attention and resources and ingenuity placed to how to drill for oil and gas really, really well. And um, what we realized is, like, if we could just take some of the innovation that's happened in that space and reapply it to this one, it should be possible to dramatically, dramatically lower the cost of putting ground loops in a yard. And so that's uh, really the thinking that guides our drill development. Um, in the pa- in 2018, so in, in the last year, we really have put a lot of attention to streamlining the process of installing the heat pump itself. In 2019, 
I think our focus will very much be on the drilling and just operationalizing our new technology and making that process much easier for the homeowner. So you started with an off-the-shelf heat pump. Now you've built your own. You started with off-the-shelf drills. Now you're building your own drills. That's exactly right. And I think, again, it speaks to sort of how iterative this particular business can be in a way that I think is advantageous because... Yeah, so much of our technical development is informed by selling systems to real people. Where is Dandelion today as far as traction and sales? We have made the decision to focus in New York because there are so many homes and the market is so big that we have the luxury of just choosing one sort of regulatory regime to focus on and it really limits the complexity to only have one state. So we're selling in New York and we you know went from having sold zero <laughs> dandelion airs when it, the product launched in June to I think we closed the year at over a 10 million dollar run rate of product sales so it's it's been a really really fast adoption and growth curve for the company. Uh, and where do you see dandelion in 5 years? So I think that in five years, there's just so much um, we'll do to not only raise awareness that geothermal is even an option. So like you can imagine most people have heard of solar at this point and know that they could get it on their roof. I think most people have not. They don't even know that geothermal is an option. And that's one of the biggest barriers that we have to solve. So I expect that, you know, in five years, it will be part of our understanding of the landscape of renewables. And um, I think we'll see tens of thousands of homes, if not more, you know, like the, the opportunity is, it couldn't be bigger. And we have the opportunity of sort of standing on the shoulders of solar. So we don't have to invent everything from scratch. We can sort of look to the solar industry and their successes and what hasn't worked and then try to apply those lessons as best we can to this one. Throughout the process of building the company, what came easy to you and how have those strengths evolved over time? Yeah, I think what came easy has always been sort of like looking at a technology or at an existing landscape and then seeing the potential and and knowing how to test for, you know, how to evolve it into Having a product vision, I guess, is a good summary. What has been not as easy and, and been a huge growth experience is just all of the operational and managerial and financial aspects of running a company. And I've really had to learn those mm. quickly. To that, how has your leadership evolved? I've always been more of a facilitative type leader, so more comfortable facilitating a conversation than directly leading it or um, leading by example. And I think those are valid and good and have their place. And um, and it's also really important to know how to be an assertive and direct leader, which is a skill that clearly one has to adopt to be an effective CEO. So over time, I would say I've learned how to how to embody those aspects of leadership more. In addition to that, the decisiveness, are there other lessons that have taken a long time to learn? 
Well, um, <laughs> yeah, I would say so. I mean, I think one thing about being at Google of all companies for seven years is that it's a world of abundance and mm-hmm. um, capital is not the thing that's in short supply. If anything, it's um, it's attention and, and people. And I think transitioning to a startup so quickly, it's just, it couldn't be more different, right? Capital is in short supply and what you have are like too many ideas. And um, so I really had to adjust. And I think at the beginning, I really struggled with that. But especially with our business, focus is everything. And that lesson luckily didn't take too long to learn just because the the business really punishes you when you don't, when you mm-hmm. don't focus. Do you think being a woman has had an impact on how you lead? It's always a hard question because mm-hmm. I've never experienced anything else, but, um, but I'm sure it has the difficulty sort of coming to terms with leadership. I can only imagine that <laughs> if I were the same person, but a man, that experience would have been different, but I also, it's so hard to know. Mm-hmm. To close before we go into our high voltage round, what does the future of energy look like? It clearly has geothermal. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for saying so. Um, well, yeah, I feel like uh, renewable power is in a good place. Like it seems to have a lot of momentum and I would put EVs in that category as well now too. And so I really do think that buildings and the you know millions of point source emissions that they contain are one of the next frontiers because they're a huge sector of emissions and they're unique in sort of their requirements for um for a solution Mm -hmm. and so I think electrifying obviously I think electrifying um buildings and getting rid of those point source emissions is part of the future I think also we'll start to see innovation in transportation that is a little bit more difficult to um to solve at first things like airplanes and really heavy-duty vehicles, agriculture, like these are all the sectors that produce a lot of emissions where we haven't quite seen exactly how they'll go. Mm-hmm. Moving into our high-voltage round, quick questions, quick answers, starting with if you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? This is a cliche answer perhaps, but I think I would be a dolphin because they're smart and hang out in groups and they eat sashimi all day and it just looks really fun. Dolphins are great. Um, I'm a fan. Uh, If you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be? I think I would either end up finding a new problem to just become intrigued by and focus on and, and try to solve. Probably that's what I would do. There is a part of me that also would love to just like go and study physics and understand the universe and time and space and just like something a little bit less practical. I think like Ravenclaw versus Gryffindor. It's hard to say. (laughs) It's hard to say. Uh, Other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? I definitely couldn't do it without my husband, Auni. So he um, begrudgingly agreed to move to New York to support me and I would say perhaps even does more than 50% at times to allow me to to be the CEO that I want to be for the company. And um, 
yeah, I don't know if I could do it without him. When have you failed? All the, (laughs) every day. But I guess like the way I think about it is, um, maybe on the coordinate plane of failure, you have severity on one axis and then sort of like moral culpability or, you know, you should have been able to not fail in that way on the other. And I actually think it's good for me anyway. I want to lead a life where I have a lot of failures close to the origin, which is going really well because I do. Um, But hopefully fewer as you get farther out. It's a really interesting answer. Uh, What's the best investment you've ever made? Not to be too repetitive, but I do think that uh, marrying my husband (laughs) was probably the most life-changing in a good way um, investment that I've made. Is there something that you thought was true that you no longer believe? I think that I used to look at the world in a way where um, certain people were able to do certain things because I think sometimes like the structures in the world are designed to make you feel that way. So for just to give a really specific example, uh, part of the spin-out process from X, I was asked, you know, what do you think the cap table should look like for Dandelion? And I literally didn't know what a cap table was, right? And like that concept is not complicated at all. It's just no civilians go around using the word cap table. So I just (laughs) didn't know what it was. But I think that it can make people feel like a sense of impossibility around things that are actually totally doable. And there are just so many examples like that. And in the course of doing a lot of things that that I was afraid of doing because of barriers, sort of superficial barriers like that one, I, I think I've gotten over that illusion. And I no longer believe that that certain parts of the world are off limits Mm. because of things like that. When are you your best self? When I've gotten enough sleep. (laughs) (laughs) What's your worst trait? One trait that I would love, I guess what comes to mind first is like one trait I would love to change is just, you know, the job of, of being CEO of this startup. It really is hard to remove yourself from the stress of it and just the constant thinking and when I also have a one-year-old and just like so much of my my life that I care about going on at the same time, I think I, I would love to get better at just living in the moment and stepping out of some of that rush of, of need that Dandelion always has, you know? Mm-hmm. If you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? Well, certainly it would be nice if we could get off of uh, fossil fuels. <laughs> Agreed. If there was just one person listening to this podcast, who would you want it to be? I would say that the audience that I would love to speak to is people who were struggling with the same type of barriers that I just talked about, you know, and and thinking, I know if I listened to this myself, even just like four years ago, I would never think that I would be a speaker on this podcast and things can change so quickly. And so I would, I would just want them to hear that and to know that, you know, People always say this, like, if I could do it, anyone could do it. But I really think that that has a lot of truth to it, that if you want to do it, you can probably do it. Finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because? The wrong mixture of vision and pragmatism. Hmm. Success is? Living by your values. I'm most proud of? 
Um, I'm most proud of the team that James and I have built and also what the team has accomplished so far and just making people take geothermal seriously and give it a chance. And then, I'm sorry, this answer is more than one word. (laughs) Um, Probably just like my family and the life that I have. Last question, to build a successful startup, what it takes is? Persistence and, um, you know, a willingness to work very hard over a very long duration. With that, please give a big round of applause to Kathy. You can listen to all our What It Takes interviews since 2017 right here. And join us for news stories of founders who are building a carbon-free future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. We're launching new episodes monthly throughout 2021. Subscribe everywhere you get your podcasts. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse in partnership with Postscript Audio. Powerhouse partners with leading corporations and investors to help them lead the next century of clean technology innovation. Our fund, Powerhouse Ventures, invests in founding teams, building innovative software to rapidly transform our global energy and mobility systems. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund. That's powerhouse.fund. Our executive producer is Stephen Lacey. Our producers are Jamie Kaiser, Rye Story Fisher, and Emma McDonough. Sean Marquand mixed the episodes and composed our music. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes.